Welcome now to Breaking News. It continues. Let's hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris? All right, Anderson, thank you. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. How could no one see and stop the horror unfolding at the Astroworld Music Festival in Houston Friday? It's where rapper Travis Scott was performing. Now, look, you're going to hear that, well, accidents happen. That's right. That's why you have people and systems in place to handle them, or not, as may be the case. This sound I'm about to play from the NRG Park concert, look, for some of you, it'll be uncomfortable to watch. But I would suggest you watch it so you understand the situation. And don't focus on what you see. It's going to be what you don't see and don't hear that's truly disturbing. That's okay, MG, real quick. Take me this door. The woman that you saw there screaming says she was yelling to a security guard off camera. Eight people died, a 14-year-old boy, a 16-year-old girl among them. They've all been identified now. Hundreds more were hurt, a massive crowd of 50,000. Even some of the EMS crews trying to respond appeared to be surrounded and all but paralyzed. And look at this, someone even dancing on top of an emergency vehicle. Look, Travis Scott himself seems confused. Take a listen. What the f- is that? Now, unfortunately, he wasn't the only one who didn't get what was happening. We know the concert went on for up to 40 minutes after the first report of injuries in the crowd. Yet in the middle of that 40-minute window, a mass casualty event was declared. Now watch this moment from Apple Music's video of the concert. It's about four minutes after the mass casualty event is officially unfolding. Scott, the performer, sees at least some sign of trouble for an audience member. Watch. Slowly. We need somebody to help him. Somebody passed out right here. Somebody passed out right here. No, 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 don't touch him, don't touch him. Everybody just back up. Security, somebody help. Jump in real quick. Keep going. Just keep it this way. Keep the music somebody going. Come on, come on. A few seconds later, Scott goes on with the concert. And it keeps going on for nearly half an hour. The real concern is going to be what was foreseeable. Get used to that word. It's part of a legal analysis, but it means what it sounds like. What was a red flag? What should they have prepared for? What should they have known might happen and that they had to be ready before Scott even took the stage? You know, if you go back to a documentary about Travis Scott, you look behind the scenes at this moment from the security team getting ready for one of his shows. According to what appears to be a security briefing before this particular concert in Rogers, Arkansas, 2017 is the year. A man identified by the subtitles as a manager warns other staff that the crowd, ready, will be pushing at the front barricade. Listen. Our kids, they push up against the front and spread all the way across that and fill in the whole front floor. So the pressure becomes very great up against the barricade. You will see a lot of crowd surfers in general. 
but also you see a lot of kids that are just trying to get out and get to safety because they can't breathe because it's so compact. Like you won't know how bad it could be with our crowd until we turn on. You won't know how bad it could be until we turn on. But obviously he had an idea. So was the planning for what they knew had happened in the past there this time? And if so, was it adequate? Because they clearly not only knew the risks, they knew the reality. Scott himself pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor for encouraging people to rush the stage in Arkansas. And two years earlier, he encouraged fans at Lollapalooza to jump into the barricades or to jump over the barricades. So should security at NRG Park have prepared better for fans running to get inside the venue the first moment they could? CNN this afternoon obtained a detailed operations plan for the festival. It goes through every scenario, active shooter, severe weather, riot, crowd search. No, no specific contingency for crowd search. Yet in 2019, three people went to the hospital after being trampled at a Houston music festival. The headliner then, Travis Scott. The history was there. The signs were there. And this time, those signs were early. Look at this isolated event I want to show you here. Of isolated, they're tripping, they're running over others. Authorities are now asking whether the nightmare should have been prevented. This is early on from this one. Now look, people trip, people fall. But this is part of the culture of these events with this particular performer and probably others. But this is the one we're focused on today. Even the police chief was nervous. Okay, the chief tweeted today, quote, I met with Travis Scott and his head of security for a few moments last Friday prior to the main event. I expressed my concerns regarding public safety and that in my 31 years of law enforcement experience, I've never seen a time with more challenges facing citizens of all ages to include a global pandemic and social tension throughout the nation. Now, look, to me, that sounds a little bit like a CYA there. But is the police chief directly responsible for a private venue event? No. The New York Times reports the chief does know Scott personally and thought he was doing good for his hometown, but conveyed concerns about the energy in the crowd. Now, keep in mind, Scott isn't just a performer. He's the festival's organizer as well. Another thing to know is this is now a criminal investigation. So let's get after it. And we're going to start with people who are in the middle of the chaos. I want you to meet Billy Nasser. He worked to pull people to safety. And Andrew Medina, he was a fan who started to fear for his own safety. Uh, Thank God you're both well. I appreciate missing you both. Um, Billy, let me start with you. Um, When did you realize that this situation was uh, far more than typical pushing and shoving at a concert? It started before Travis even came out. Basically, there was not even a centimeter you could fit between the person next to you. As soon as he came out, I saw the first dead body about 10 minutes in. And dead from what, as far as you could tell? What happened? Um, they passed out, and they were on the ground and basically getting trampled, and no one would pick them up, and there was just too many people there, and it was overcrowded. The way the barricades were set up had people trapped in, and it was a death trap. How you doing, young man? You all right? I'm, I'm not doing all right. okay. I'm doing okay. Um, well, hold on a second. No, no, I'll, Andrew, I'll be with you in one second. I'm sorry. But okay. the question I'm goes sorry. to you too, pal. You're both young, and I want you to be well. But, um, Billy, this has got to be a tough thing uh, to be talking about and thinking about. 
how are you handling it so far? It's all right. I've never, I've never seen a dead person before. So to see kids on the ground with their eyes rolling back to their head and for the media to be underreporting the deaths, it's kind of really frustrating. Well, look, you're not supposed to see things like that. Uh, it's not natural, uh, certainly not at a concert. Um, and just, you know, just make sure you're talking with your friends, you're talking with family and that you take care of yourself. All right. That's what matters the most. Right. Um, now, right. listen to me talk to Andrew and then I'm going to come back to you. Uh, Andrew, thank you. Go ahead. Uh, how are you handling it? You doing well? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, I, I am. I am. Um, <clears throat> uh, I was I was at the front of the barricade and, um, you know, that crowd was just, you know, so intense and just, you know, um, I was just up against the barricade the whole the whole time and it was just crushing my like my body as um you know the night went on and um <clears throat> and uh it it um you know it, it started it, it started in the beginning actually um you know I, I i could already tell by when i entered the festival um you know just how it was going to be um you know just the the um the atmosphere of of the fans and and, and how they were was it different than other shows you've been to um, you know, I've, I've gone to, you know, I've gone to raves and I've gone to, you know, other festivals and, you know, this was by far the, um, the craziest event that, uh, I've been to. Billy, you agree with that? I agree. I've never seen anything like it. I've been to like dozens of Travis shows and I've never seen anything like it. So you don't think it's about Travis Scott or the way they put on his shows in particular. You think it was just this night, this city. It was the organizers of the festivals. The way they set up the barricade when I first got there, I knew it would not be able to fit that many people. And what did you see, Billy, in terms of staff? Uh, were they present? Could you see that there were a lot of people around? I mean, obviously, uh, you're not going to be able to do anything like matching the number of people, 50,000 strong. But did yeah. you see a presence there, Billy? Um, the paramedics couldn't even reach us. They didn't have enough EMTs. They didn't have enough security guards for the people that were there and people were just getting trampled, falling over, and then people were just falling on top of them, creating a pile of bodies. And I was checking pulses, and that's when I realized people were done. It was about 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes into the show, and uh, they kept going on for another hour after that, and the show didn't stop, even though they saw ambulances in the crowd. How old are you, Billy? I'm 24. Now, when you say that you think the media was underreporting the number of dead, the, the, they're telling us that eight people uh, died at the concert, and that... Uh, there are a lot of other people obviously injured. Uh, do you not agree with that number? Um, a lot of the people that were there with me saw more than eight people. They actually reported 11 at one point, and they keep changing the numbers, so it's really inaccurate. Um, well, look, I mean, there's always a possibility that you saw people who were on the ground and hurt or even unconscious, right, but they right. wound up not, uh, you know, dying from it. But you're right. we gotta, we got to make it accurate. Now, um, Andrew, help me understand... What did you make of the fact that the concert kept going after there were obviously really messed up things going on uh, at the concert that you were aware of and that even Travis Scott may have been aware of, but certainly the people throwing the show should have been aware? Yeah, um, you know, there were, um, you know, the, 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 there was tons of people behind me, you know, as, as I was at the barricade and, and you know, every every, let's say, 10, 15 minutes, there was a, there was a body getting, uh, you know, like a, 
a body that wasn't moving that was, you know, on going on over my head. And, um, you know, they were getting tossed to the security or, or the police. And, you know, at, at that time, I didn't know if they were, you know, just passed out or if they had passed away. I mean, I, I, I didn't I wasn't thinking about that at that time. And, um, you know, that I, I would just see those bodies get, you know, taken away to I don't know where. And, you know, that that happened throughout the whole concert until finally I, I, um, I had to get out because, you know, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. How'd you get out of the, from the barricade if you're being crushed? Um, there were multiple police um, and security in the front. And, um, you know, the people in the front were asking uh, to get taken out because, you know, they just couldn't take it anymore. Right. And uh, when I had just, you know, I, I, my, uh, my ribs were getting crushed by the, by the steel barricade. And I just, I, I, um, I had I had to ask to get taken out. <clears throat> hey, Billy, if people are looking at you, um, you've yeah. got hospital scrubs on and you wear them yeah, because right. that is part of uh, your persona as a DJ. And you had scrubs okay. on at the show, right? Right. My dad's a doctor and I wore his scrubs as like in honor of him. because He's a famous heart doctor. So was my grandpa. And they always wanted me to be a doctor. And Travis actually posted a picture of me on his Instagram wearing the scrubs. So that's why I kept wearing them. And people were asking for a medic and doctor, and they were looking at me for help. Um, well, look, you were trying to help uh, the best way you could. And that, that's all you could do in that situation. Uh, Billy, does it matter to you that Travis Scott is one of the organizers of the event as well? Do you think this is about him um, at all? I mean, I wouldn't put the blame entirely on Travis. I think it's on the organizers of the festival, but Travis did see the ambulance in the crowd and kept going. And he saw the unconscious bodies being crowd surfed and uh, they kept going. So I'm one of the biggest Travis fans you'll find and I, I can't support Travis anymore after this. Well, let's let all the facts come out and see where the responsibility lays. But here's what we know tonight among the three of us. Uh, you guys, thank God, are okay. Uh, and you made it out of the show and you live to go to another one. And not everybody can say that. So Billy, God bless and good luck going forward. Uh, and Andrew, uh, thank you very much. And I'm glad you made it out of there, and I hope you're okay. Gentlemen, thank you. I'm sorry to meet you this way, but I'm happy to meet you. It's All right? Okay. Thank you. All right. Look, let's take a beat on this uh, because it's got to be about how we do these things, especially now coming out of COVID. Everybody's so anxious to get back to life. But we have to do things the right way. And you have your possible warning signs, but you also have a look at why this happened this way this time, okay? Uh, Travis Scott's shows, are they any different? Now, there is actually someone who investigates exactly these kinds of events in the music world. What do we know? about what matters, what are the questions to ask, and how this sizes up to other situations this man has seen. Answers next. The race to assign blame started almost immediately. That means lawsuits. But against whom and for what? We're talking about the Travis Scott show in Houston. Now, the Houston fire chief says, even Scott had a role in stopping this. I truly believe, you know, um, that at some point, if, if, the, if the lights would have been turned on, the promoter or, or the artist called for that, it would have, it would have chilled 
the crowd. And, and who knows? Who knows what the outcome would have been? Now, would that be a first if Travis Scott were held liable or responsible as a performer? Now, the problem for Scott is that he's also an organizer of this, a producer. So to the extent that there is exposure on the side of those who put this together, Scott will be listed there as well. Is what happened at Astroworld, the Scott concert in Houston, different from other tragedies in music history? You know, you had The Who in Cincinnati in 1979. Pearl Jam in 2009, people died there. Uh, the Indiana State Fair in 2011, you remember that? When the stage collapsed during the Sugarland show? My next guest has investigated them all. Paul Wertheimer. It's good to have you on primetime, sir. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity. What's your take on this from what we understand this far? Well, it was a preventable tragedy. It followed the path of some of the very uh, incidents you just mentioned, and others too, I might add. Uh, 1991 ACDC concert at Salt Lake City, three dead crushed in front of the stage, Four, two 14-year-olds and a 19-year-old. And of course, you mentioned Pearl Jam in Denmark in 2000. Nine fans crushed to death in front of Eddie Vedder. The same kind of situation. You mentioned the Who concert. And let's not forget Woodstock 99. Rapes and thousands of injuries in front of the main stage. And I, at that time, I publicly said, prior to the festival, that this is where the problem was, not on the perimeter, but in front of the stage in the mosh pit festival seating. You see, one thing they all have in common is festival seating, the same seating configuration used at this festival. It's the most dangerous and deadly crowd configuration in the history of concerts and festivals. Why do they keep doing it the same way? Well, you can ask that to the promoters, but my, my assessment is because it makes so much money. It's so lucrative. You, every seat you sell, every ticket you sell in festival seating is a ticket in front of the stage where the, where the lead, this, uh, singer is. Everybody thinks that's their spot. There's not a bad festival seating ticket because they're sold all for the same spot. And I tell you, this is a problem in festi- with festival seating. People are forced to compete against each other for that special area, special location, whatever. In crowd safety, that's the last thing you want to happen. You want people working together for the common good of the crowd. How instructive is it that in the documentary you hear uh, Travis Scott's team talking about exactly the issues that wound up happening in this show? Um, how important or instructive do you believe in the investigation is going to be what they knew from other shows? Well, that shows notice, doesn't it? That's the canary in the coal mine. That means that they knew they were having they were running reckless crowd environments. And they put up with it. I mean, when did it become okay for fans to get squished, crushed at a concert? And that was business as usual. See, that concert and all the concerts they were talking about like that were dangerous. 
just because nothing happens does not mean an event is safe. It just means nothing happened. And they were playing Russian roulette every time they did this kind of reckless event or any other promoter or act. Friday, everything went wrong. Does Travis Scott, uh, as a producer, he's going to have some exposure to whatever the civil suits are. And if they do find any criminal liability on the uh, part of the promotion, he would be listed with that. But do you believe performers have a responsibility to take action during a show? Of course they do. They've got a great responsibility, moral and, I argue, as others will, legal responsibility for the safety of the crowd. After all, that's why the crowd's there. He's a mo- he, In some ways, he's the most important crowd manager at the v- event, or he certainly has a role. And he's the one who whips up the crowd until it spins out of control. He... Artists like him, and this is not a criticism, they feed off the energy of the crowd. They want to see the crowd mosh. They want to see it go crazy. They want to see it stage dive. They want to see the crowd surge. That means the music is reaching the fans. I've spent almost two decades in these very, very crowd environments. And when I go to festivals and concerts, I go to the center in front of the stage because that's the first and most dangerous area in festival seating. Well, Paul, I appreciate your perspective on this. Don't spend too much time in those areas uh, because, you know, uh, you don't want to take any more risks than you have to. But I understand why you do it. And I appreciate your insight into this. And I'd love to bring you back when we get more of an understanding of where this is headed. And you can tell us what makes sense and what doesn't. Paul Wertheimer, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. All right, the January 6th investigation is all going to be about getting people to talk. I mean, you know, that, that's going to be the problem it always is, especially here, because, you know, again, opposition has become a position, not just in politics, but in the practicalities of our law enforcement. They don't want to, they don't want to comply. So there's some big names that have just been called to the carpet. What will they mean? We have a member of the select committee here. What's the goal? Is this going to help or hurt the Democrats in the midterms, by the way? It's not what it's about, but it will affect it. Next. All right, so there is a new round of subpoenas issued today by the January 6th Select Committee, targeting six top Trump campaign advisors who pushed the big lie. Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien. John Eastman. Now, that name has gotten attention. The attorney who devised a scheme for Pence to overturn the election. Michael Flynn, the ex-national security advisor who who was pardoned by Trump. Um, Also, senior advisor Jason Miller and Bernie Kerik. Remember him? He used to be police commissioner in New York City after 9-11, during 9-11. Two associates. They both met with Giuliani and Bannon on January 5 as well as Angela McCallum, an executive assistant. Will they comply, and what fruit could they yield? Steve Bannon, here's the context. He was held in contempt of Congress over two weeks ago. DOJ, no decision on whether to prosecute yet. Let's bring in a key member of the committee, Congressman Adam Schiff. Good to see you as always, sir. Uh, Let's start with that. Uh, Good to see you. Two weeks, no word from the DOJ. Is that too long? I don't think it's too long. They do need to study the precedent, uh, the facts of the case, 
I think it's a pretty straightforward case, though, and I hope that they move with expedition. Uh, if the Justice Department doesn't hold uh, Steve Bannon accountable, um, it uh, only lends credence to the idea that some people are above the law, uh, and that cannot be true in this country. Also, uh, you know, what's at stake is the Congress's ability to enforce lawful process. Uh, the Congress can't be any more successful as a Congress than a court could be uh, if a court suddenly lost the power to subpoena witnesses to testify. So it's going to be really important to whether Congress continues to be a co-equal branch of government uh, and a check and balance on the executive. Uh, who do you see as uh, particularly significant in this new batch of subpoenas and why? Uh, you know, several are very significant. Obviously, Eastman was deeply involved in the legal strategy to overturn the election uh, with this bogus theory that the vice president could simply disregard the electors uh, from states that didn't go Trump's way. Um, but also, you know, Mike Flynn was apparently at a December Oval Office meeting where they talked about um, using emergency powers, declaring a national emergency or seizing voting machines. Uh, he gave an interview in which uh, he even, I think, talked about martial law. As you point out, this was someone, albeit for a short period of time, who was the national security advisor to the president. Um, but the other witnesses are also very important. Some participated in the so-called war room at the Willard Hotel on January 5th, uh, and we want to hear what they have to say. Do you think that these most recent elections uh, and this idea that the electorate is telling you guys in the Democratic Party, uh, get things done, make things better for me, don't fight your own fights, fight my fights. Uh, do you worry at all that the January 6th commission is something that's past its expiration date with the American voter, that they don't care anymore, they don't want you to spend your time on this? No, I think the public understands uh, how serious an attack on the Capitol uh, is. Uh, and I think they share the concern about the fate of our democracy. I would be worried if it were the only thing we were doing, uh, if we hadn't passed a rescue plan, if we hadn't passed an infrastructure bill, if we we're not about to pass uh, another huge uh, investment in the American people in the Build Back Better Act. But uh, we are doing so much, uh, really New Deal level investment in the American people that we have a powerful case to make uh, in terms of our legislative agenda. But it's also important to our constituents that we defend democracy. And part of that is making sure we never have another January 6th. Uh, do you think that the spending bill, the Build Back Better bill, is going to uh, get a real serious vote anytime soon in terms of being passed? I do. Uh, you know, we have an agreement to take this up uh, by November 15th, uh, and we need to make sure that it can get through both House and Senate. Um, but we'll get there. We'll get it done. Uh, and when we do, it's going to be of enormous importance to the country in helping reduce the cost of prescription drugs and helping seniors with hearing issues uh, and helping uh, parents uh, with universal uh, preschool education and uh, helping uh, attack the problem of climate with the most significant investment in attacking climate change in our nation's history. So uh, lots of the public strongly supports uh, and we'll get it done. You know, I know that, you know, you've already, we've talked about how you, you uh, agree with what I'm about to say, but your party not making securing the democracy, it's absolute focus. Um, and because, you know, you have the same problem with Manchin and Cinema about the filibuster on the spending bill and having to go reconciliation as you do on the voting rights uh, protection. And do you think that has to get done uh, for Democrats to be able to make the case to the American voter 
that you honored the mandate they gave you by putting their interests first? I mean, what matters more than securing the democracy? Well, I, I think that's paramount. Uh, and, and I would say that protecting the right to vote is paramount to protecting the democracy. If the foundation isn't solid and the right to vote is the foundation, then the whole edifice uh, crumbles uh, to the ground. Um, the, the, the economic bills, the Build Back Better legislation, infrastructure, rescue plan, those are also part of a democracy agenda because you need to show that democracy can produce uh, for its people. Uh, and for many millions of people, uh, our economy has not been working for them. So that's a key part of the democracy agenda. But the most important part is voting rights. Uh, and, uh, and so, yes, I, I think the Congress, as well as the president, very personally, needs to be as deeply and daily engaged on that uh, as anything we're doing on the economy. Mm. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you very much. Good luck doing the work of the people. Thank you. Hey, I don't know if you heard, but uh, Joe Madison, very famous guy on radio, uh, goes by the Black Eagle. Uh, he just started a hunger strike because of the inaction on voting rights. And I'm going to make a call to him after the show, see if we can get him on to talk about that. Uh, hunger strike is a very serious thing. Uh, it's very extreme. It be very, very dangerous. Why? What it means. The urgency. I'm telling you, it's an issue. I can't believe how much it's been slept on uh, by the Democrats. And yes, that's how I see it. I think they've slept on it. They didn't make it their priority and they didn't stay with it and find a way through it until they could get it done. And I think they're going to regret it. Now, Aaron Rodgers. Listen, he needed to own his actions. And it seems like he's got happy feet in the pocket right now. He's dancing. Only this isn't a game. What he is saying deserves attention, but so does the silence from the team and the league. So what do you say? Let's get after it. Green Bay Packers star quarterback Aaron Rodgers says he's under attack from the woke mob. No, you just need to wake up, brother. You're no victim of anything but your own bad choices. The NFL MVP quarterback said he was immunized when first asked about the jab. He, in fact, was not vaccinated against COVID-19. Listen to him break down his reasoning. I realize I'm in the crosshairs of the woke mob right now. So before my final nail gets put in my cancel culture uh, casket, I think I'd like to set the record straight on so many of the uh, blatant lies that are out there about myself right now. I'm not, uh, you know, some sort of anti-vax flat earther. Um, I, I am somebody who's a critical thinker. I have uh, an allergy to an ingredient that's in the mRNA vaccines. The organization knew exactly what my status was. My teammates knew exactly what my status was. There was uh, nothing that was hidden. So two questions. One, if there was nothing that was hidden, then why did they allow you not to follow the protocols for unvaccinated people? And two, if you have an immunity issue or an allergy issue to one of the ingredients, why didn't you go to a doctor and try to get a medical exemption? Let's bring in sports journalist and host of The Right Time with Bomani Jones. Bomani Jones, what's your take? I mean, I think he's done a fantastic end around so far by trying to pose this as being some sort of cultural issue. 
um, and ignoring that the real problem that people have is you lie to people's faces. Like that's what it came down to. And it shouldn't have been so easy for him to lie because when he it was asked if he was vaccinated, he said, yeah, I'm immunized. Somebody's supposed to be like, hey, wait a minute, man. That's not what I asked you. Nobody did that and he carried the lie over. That's the problem that people have. Everything else that he's tried to turn this into some macro issue ignores the fact that the problem that people had was you seem to be lying to people and you seem to be carrying on as a vaccinated person when you, in fact, were not. It's one of those end rounds, but to play with the metaphor, it's one of those ones where you keep running deeper and deeper into your own field territory. You know, and they're chasing you and you're getting away, but you're going backwards, not forwards towards what we call the gain line uh, when it comes. So and then you get the silence. Where's the team on this? You know what I mean? He just said there in that interview, you knew everything. If you knew everything, why did you let him do nothing when you have protocols in place? Where's the league? going after him about this, Bomani? Well, I think they're going to be looking into this, and it's going to be tricky for some other teams. How long does it I'm take sure to look air- into it? It's all obvious. Oh, no, it does You know, I agree. It would be very obvious here. But for the Packers, what the question becomes for me is, why exactly did you go along with it? Because if you believe what Aaron Rodgers says, and in this case, I'm inclined to believe him, he says he's adhered to the protocols everywhere, basically except for this media availability. And with the media availability, if he wore a mask, he would disclose that he was not vaccinated. It would be the tell for everybody. The team seemed to be going along with that, almost like they're embarrassed by the idea that he wasn't vaccinated and all the things he went through to try to not have to be treated like an unvaccinated person. I could see why they might find it to be embarrassing or maybe they were afraid if somebody asked about it in a press conference, that cockamamie interview he gave to Pat McAfee would be one that he gave with their logos behind him. Maybe that's it, but the team, Absolutely. They knew that he was not a vaccinated party and they let him present as such. And I think it's because both the team and Aaron Rodgers didn't want to be embarrassed. So I'm wondering where all this courage came from him to talk about it now, because he always could have said the things that he's saying right now. It only came up when he tested positive. But I'm curious as to why, given the resolve that he seems to have. You think he should be allowed to play this week? Um, if he tests negative, then I am inclined to say, yeah, because I really think that the Packers are the real guilty party for him being able to flout these rules as such. It's their responsibility to enforce them. They allowed him to get away with it. So if he is healthy enough to play, then yeah, I think he should play. I just want him to be able to answer for himself. Why did he feel the need to lie to people about it in the first place? Because that's the one thing he didn't seem to want to answer, right? Like he wanted to give all praises to Joe Rogan, whom apparently, while he says he talks to Harvard MDs about stuff, it was Joe Rogan that really guided him. He took stuff that is for horses. All of those things. Why did you lie to us in the first place if you were willing to embarrass yourself later? Well, the embarrassment was going to begin as soon as he pointed out Joe Rogan as one of his touchstones of his critical thinking. Bomani Jones, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Thank you, sir. All right. Let's turn to the murder trial of Ahmad Arbery's accused killers. Okay, his mother's going to join us. Um, she went into that courtroom, which, you know, we see from time to time. But she also wanted to watch this awful video that I remember her saying, you know, that they wanted to not look at for obvious reasons. Why look at it now? What did it mean to her? And what does she hope that video means to the jury? Next. All right, so the Ahmad Arbery trial is going to be a very interesting battle between the prosecutors and a really tired defense. The crux of it for the three white men on trial is that 
they killed the 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery as a modified form of self-defense. Now, you remember Arbery was out on a jog. And they are going to use a now-defunct citizen's arrest law. Today was just day two of testimony in this trial. Already the state worked to poke holes in the defense argument, calling up several witnesses, including the first officer who arrived at the scene of the shooting. Listen as he recounted what William Roddy Bryan Jr., the man who recorded the video of Arbery being chased, told him. How many times did Mr. Bryan say that he either blocked Ahmad or cornered him during this chase? After going back and reviewing um, the uh, transcribed body camera, it appeared to be approximately five times. Did Brian ever say he saw Ahmad commit any crime at the point where Brian decided to leave his house? Um, no, ma'am, he did not report any crime to me. Okay. Did Brian ever say he was trying to make a citizen's arrest of Ahmad? No, ma'am. Now, when citizen's arrest fails or is found uh, like it's going to be an unsatisfying way to go, because remember, the defense doesn't have to make a case. But if it does decide to make what they call an affirmative case in the law, which is to plead self-defense and to make that articulated argument, if they see that going away, they're going to have to just fall back on traditional uh, self-defense, which would be that Ahmad Arbery came at them and presented a threat of serious or deadly injury. So let's take a break and then come back and talk to Ahmad Arbery's mother and counsel. Next. Joining us now is Wanda Cooper-Jones, who, of course, is Ahmaud Arbery's mother, and the Arbery family attorney, uh, Mark McGuire. It's good to see you, Counselor. Uh, Ma'am, nice to see you. Hi, nice to meet you as well. Um, Ms. Cooper-Jones, what did it mean to you, and why did you decide to want to watch the video in the courtroom of what happened to your son? Um, I often... um avoided the video simply because I didn't think I had the mental capacity to take it. But I also wondered what happened to Ahmad in the last minutes of his life. Um, I avoided the video because I didn't think I could take it. But then when the trial started, I knew it was time for me to try to get familiar with it because I was going to see it over and over again. What when, when you did see it, and to the extent that you could process what you were seeing emotionally, what did it mean to you? Um, it was very disturbing. It was very heartbreaking knowing that Ahmad had, like I said from the very beginning that he ran. I didn't realize he had ran so long, but um, he, hearing the testimonies from the last couple of days, you know, it's just, um, it's reassuring that Ahmad actually ran for his life. And what do you hope the jury sees in that video? I'm hoping that the jury see what the world see. Is that Ahmad hadn't had to commit the crime. He was simply out for a jog. He did stop by that unoccupied home. But again, Ahmad didn't commit a crime. And Ahmad was chased and eventually killed. Counselor, do you believe that the prosecution is going at this the right way thus far? I think what the prosecution has on its side is the evidence. They need to show the video. They need to show the body cam video. They need to show the words and actions of these defendants 
Um, and they need to do that consistently. And the more that they do that, the worse that it gets for these defendants. So so long as they continue to put these images in front of these drawers, um, I think that's adequate uh, <clears throat> for a, a finding of guilt on the charges they're facing. Ms. Cooper-Jones, uh, we told the audience early on that we were going to stay on the Ahmad Arbery case all the way through uh, because too often these efforts move out of the media spotlight. And we'll follow the trial, we'll follow the verdict, uh, and we'll cover the ramifications. That's our job, and I promise you we'll do that. And I wish you strength during that process. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. Counselor, thank you. Thank you for watching. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. D. Lemon. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.